It's hard to argue with the notion of getting good value for whatever you purchase, but when it comes to health care, after years of paying for providers, procedures, prescriptions, almost no matter what, and with almost no sense of budgetary or resource limitations, it's a monumental task to turn this whole thing around. What's value? Who gets to decide? What's the best way to find out? Do we know enough already to start paying for health care differently? Or do we keep saying we don't know enough because the disruption to usual payment streams is immense and presents painful, if necessary, adjustments? Well, in the U.S., the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, among other payers, is forcing the issue. We're going to be talking about one of the latest initiatives, value-based purchasing, and some other dimensions of payment reform coming down the pike on this edition of WIHI. Welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience as an archived program on IHI.org and a downloadable podcast on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. So lucky for me and for you, noted health economist Stuart Altman and IHI's Jeff Selberg are on tap to guide our discussion. Our topic is value-based purchasing as part of a lot of payment reform going on right now, and it's a significant piece of an overall agenda that's moving forward from both the public and private payer sides. Someone who knows both these worlds well, and frankly just about anything having to do with the intersection of policy and the private sector, is Stuart Altman. Stuart is the Saul C. Chaikin Professor of National Health Policy and former Dean of the Heller School for Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University. He has decades of experience with health care reform and lots of stories. And to prove it, Stuart and colleague David Shackman have a new book that's coming out called Power, Politics, and Universal Healthcare, The Inside Story of a Century-Long Battle. Stuart joins us from his office at Brandeis. Welcome to WIHI. Well, thank you, Madge. Great, great to have you. Jeff Selberg is joining us by phone from San Diego. He's IHI's Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer. Jeff has some 35 years' worth of experience in the healthcare field, 12 of them as President and CEO of Exempla Healthcare in Colorado. He's been thinking a lot about payment reform. I dare say that's something he's uh, talking about on the West Coast uh, as part of uh, uh, a speaking engagement right now. And he's uh, particularly interested in how it looks to hospital CEOs, in part because of his background and because he knows that's where there's a lot of uh, brows being furrowed right now as people try and make sense of things. So welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Matt. Good to be with you. Okay. Is it any cooler in San Diego? Uh, well, actually, I'm in San Francisco. Oh, okay. And it is. okay. It's it's, uh, it's much nicer here than what I hear uh, is going on there. Yeah. Well, we're in a bit of a a bit of a heat wave, but uh, apparently won't last too long. All right. So, Jesse, I forgot to mention to you that I'm, I am going to ask our participants for a couple of quick questions at the top, and then we'll close down chat until we get to the. Uh, 
question and answer section of the program in earnest. All right, everybody. I know it's hot, but let's uh, sort of sit up and see if we can answer a couple of these questions because of uh, some of what we have to use here on WebEx, which is primarily uh, the hand raise. Uh, I use it as a yes or no. It takes a little too long, uh, at least in the opening of the show, to uh, have everybody chat stuff in. So this is what um, I want to ask you. We're in the middle of coping with or embracing or resisting, depending on your point of view, some big pushes with regards to healthcare quality in patient, excuse me, payment. The big vision is to make things more aligned so that healthcare is something the country can afford and patients are all the better for it. So here are some quick questions so we understand who's with us today and where you might put yourself on this spectrum. This will be nice perhaps for Jeff and Stuart to know as well. How many participants are in organizations that they would say are in a proactive mode, getting ahead of the cost curve when it comes to payment reform, tied to quality measures, reductions in harm, etc.? Please raise your hand if you would put yourself in that bucket. Let's see. Anybody on the phone, I'll let you know how many folks we get, um, or phone only, how many people are raising their hands. All right, we're over 70. All right, climbing. Are we going to get over 100? Yeah, okay. Uh, okay, not quite 100. Oh, all right. Somebody's about to make it 100, just about. All right, 90. No, boy. Right, there we go. Thank you for raising your hand, that 100th. All right, we're over 100. So we have, right, just so everyone knows, we have about 360 of you on the program today, and about 100 of you said, uh, or I'd say 360 connections, and 100 of those connections, hand raises, uh, saying that you're in a proactive organization. How many, second question, thank you, how many participants are in organizations where you'd characterize the modus operandi is more reactive, maybe even a bit resistant to what's going on? Anybody going to be brave and say they're in that kind of an organization? All right, let's see. I know Jeff's on WebEx. Stuart, I believe, is just on by phone. And... Um, so 22 of you, you want anybody else want to add yourself to a resistant organization? Final question. How many organizations are engaged in any way with private insurer global payment or alternative contract arrangements or are in the early stages of becoming or thinking of becoming part of an ACO? All right. Let's see. All right. Where are we going? Where are we going? All right. 77, 68, 69. All right. Okay. Topping out. 70. Oh, more. All right. People are up. Okay. So, all right. It gives us a good sense of the general uh, lay of the land. That was getting close to 100 as well uh, on that. So a third are in that mode. Maybe some of the same people would say they're in a proactive mode. I guess there's some overlap there. And then we had some who said, a smaller, uh, said that they were... Um, I don't know, maybe uh, hope, hoping this will all go away. So thank you. <laughs> thank you all. Uh, we're going to just uh, shut down the chat, and uh, by that I just mean we'll, we'll, uh, we'll reopen it in a way that's uh, helpful for everybody uh, at the half-hour mark. So, Jeff, to you now, very quickly, um, 
it isn't always easy to keep track, but in short order, we've got carrots and sticks coming out to link hospital payments to quality. Value-based purchasing is one of the latest to emerge. Uh, so uh, could you just, I realize we've got probably a very astute group on the show today, but maybe just remind us what that is, what it seems to fit in with, and then I got another a couple questions. And if you want to react to the chat as well, uh, to uh, my quick survey, feel free. Well, I think it's wonderful that we have uh, a number of uh, participants that are uh, very active uh, in all of this, and I look forward to their uh, commentary when we get to that that point. The Accountable Care Act uh, will put about 9% of Medicare payments in play. In play is a term uh, that's used by uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid. I think some on the field would call it at risk. But that 9% is a, is a very healthy number, uh, and it involves incentives for uh, creating an electronic uh, health record and uh, so-called meaningful use. It's also about reduction of harm. It's about uh, reducing readmissions, and there are some elements for ambulatory care. So uh, depending on, on your perspective, you could, you could call that a stick uh, in the sense that um, there are going to be levels of payment at risk uh, over time, ultimately to that 9% by 2015. <coughs> On the uh, on the carrot side is the uh, Center for Medicare Medicaid Innovation Center, and they have uh, what they call four big bets that they uh, have uh, funding for. That funding relates to uh, further development in primary care, primarily in the primary care medical home. Uh, funding for increased enhanced care coordination, uh, primarily in the uh, accountable care organization development. Uh, several of our listeners are involved with that. The uh, partnership for patients in terms of uh, providing uh, funding to help in terms of reducing harm and readmissions at the hospital level. And then some innovative work with, uh, with dual eligibles. Uh, those people who have multiple uh, health issues and are high consumers of care and the sense is, is that's, uh, that's where the money is. Uh, there's also strong interest on the part of, um, I think, CMS to coordinate and align these efforts with the private sector, and there's been quite a bit of discussion between CMS and major health plans as to how major health plans can align with the partnership for patients and also develop uh, payment approaches uh, that are in line with what Medicare is doing to try to uh, consolidate, if you will, uh, the market and not have it so fragmented. Uh, so I think uh, those, are the, those are the pieces that uh, we know about. I think the Center for Innovation is going to try to develop a what they call a rapid cycle improvement, where if they see innovations work and they need to be spread, they'll develop uh, uh, payment policies, new payment policies related primarily, I think, to bundled payment. Uh, to encompass those innovations. Thanks, Jeff. Um, now I'm going to have Jesse just throw up a quick a couple slides that we pulled off of healthcare.gov about value-based purchasing uh, and the 13 items uh, that are part of that that uh, folks will recognize, I think, a lot from hospital compare as things that uh, the government has been seeking information and asking hospitals to post. What's the significance of that development? 
Well, I think what has uh, happened now is is that there's there's evidence uh, that has broad scale agreement uh, that uh, these are things that should happen or should not happen in hospitals, and if they don't, um, they um, or if they do, depending on what they are, there shouldn't be payment for them. Um, at IHI, we we use the term defects, and uh, we're in concurrence with this approach in the sense that um, a hospital shouldn't be paid for defects in care, and um, and and basically that's uh, the approach that's being uh, taken here. So if you're not uh, administering antibiotics effectively, as the the slide shows then uh, that's a defect, and you shouldn't be paid for uh, uh, for that part of the care. Okay. Thank you very much, Jeff Selberg. Usually here in the office, well, maybe traveling a lot, too, yeah. uh, joining us from San Francisco today. One more quick question, then I'm going to turn to Stuart. So is the industry ready? <laughs> well, I think so, I, I think there are many hospitals that are doing outstanding work. Uh, the issue is, is are all hospitals doing uh, this kind of work? And the answer clearly is no. So while we have what you might call the early adopters um, managing these kinds of evidence-based approaches very, very well, what we need to do is to stimulate the improvement capacity on the part of all 6,000 hospitals across the nation so that we have uniformly high-quality care. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Jeff Selberg. Appreciate it. This is WIHI, and we're talking about payment reform on Magic Kaplan. I want to turn now to Stuart Altman. It's a real privilege and pleasure to have you with us. So, Stuart, uh, my question to you is that given all the efforts of especially the past decade to guide hospitals on what constitutes a safe and effective hospital experience, as Jeff was saying, the things that shouldn't happen and the things that should, isn't this push around payment linked to improvement the next logical step? Stuart, are you there? Yes, can you hear me? Yes, okay, go ahead, step, just a little bit of distance between you and the mic, and, and we're all set, thanks. Okay, so um, what I was saying is that at one level, clearly, uh, the answer is yes. There has been a lot of uh, attempts at educating the delivery system, and I really want to sort of push what you have done at IHI in terms of uh, clearly educating the uh, the industry on what is good practice. Um, so... Yes, it, logically it makes sense to move from an area where at one level you're, you're educating people um, on what they should do to then tying it to payment. But I don't want to sort of assume that that's an easy step. Uh, for a lot of institutions, the idea that they're being asked to make changes and it's good for them and they'll do it in their own way is one thing. But the idea that henceforth their payment, particularly from a major payer like Medicare, is going to be tied to it brings with it all kinds of trepidations. And I, I want to sort of just focus a bit on what Jeff said at the end. Um, I do think that the group that is listening today is, is very skewed, and I think it shows the, the kind of people, the kind of organizations that sign up for IHI. You are really the pathfinders. But as I go around the country, there is a lot of resistance to the idea that somehow their Medicare payments are going to be tied to 
what they would consider to be pretty um, important changes in how they function. So I don't think the game is completely over yet. So is you were saying that there's a lot of trepidation. I guess my next question to you was, is actually there enough money at stake for all this to be taken really seriously? I mean, some of this is being uh, slowly uh, phased in here, but is, is the money at stake something that's making uh, hospitals quite concerned? In an era where money is getting harder and harder to come by, even 1% and 2%, you know, you're dealing with, with um, uh, amounts of money which for some hospitals could, um, you know, be 25, 30% of their total revenue, um, and you start putting 5, 6, 7, up to 9, 10% of that at, at stake, it is not trivial. And as I said, in an environment where everything seems like it's coming down, yes, it, it, it can be significant. All right. Thanks, Stuart Altman. Uh, Jeff, back to you, and I don't know, if, feel free, of course, if you want to react. Uh, one of the things I was going to just add, perhaps for both of you, uh, I was looking over the discussions that are underway in Massachusetts right now about health care costs, and it would seem as though hospitals increasingly uh, may not have nowhere to run or hide, uh, never mind what's going on with Medicare. The Attorney General here just issued a scathing report about spiraling medical costs and price disparities, and let it be known in some way that the state won't tolerate widely different prices for the same services. We're talking about tiered plans as a new means of steering members of um, health plans to uh, lower-cost providers, uh, growing consensus about global payments. This sounds quite serious, Jeff, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it is. It, it, it's uh, it's very uh, very serious, and I and I'd like to take up uh, uh, what Stuart uh, was describing in terms of its significance. Um, I think the artful balance here is to institute policies that will stimulate what I'll call value creation, and uh, that being that we're doing better for patients. Uh, at lesser cost. And ultimately what that's going to require is quite a bit of redesign in terms of how patients are cared for over a broader time horizon over multiple organizations. And the question is, is how do you stimulate that? How do you get the, the field to, uh, to innovate? And so if you move too fast, what happens is, is that the reaction will be simply to reduce costs wherever possible to assure survival. And chances are that's not going to be good for patients. On the other hand, if you don't push hard enough and we don't have the innovation and we don't bend the cost curve, we've got a, uh, a major issue uh, that's playing out in Washington, D.C. as we speak in terms of debt ceilings. And the fact is that the country cannot afford uh, what we're spending and the acceleration of that spending. So this is really about all of us, whether in the field or policymakers or in the academic world, trying to figure out that balance of pushing and pulling uh, to, to create value. In the state of Massachusetts, uh, it's, it's a real concern because the state is ahead of the rest of the nation in terms of making a commitment for full coverage. And now the question is, is how to pay for it and uh, there's there's real concern that the uh, the inflation health inflation is going to perhaps impair 
the state's ability for full coverage. Okay, thanks, uh, Jeff Selberg. If you're just joining us or forgot where you were, this is WIHI. I'm Madge Kaplan. You were just listening to IHI's Executive Vice President, Jeff Selberg. Stuart Altman is with us, a health economist and a policy professor at Brandeis, the Heller School. Stuart, so what do you think? Is there a balanced approach here? Uh, and uh, I'm going to ask you both in a moment or ask, uh, talk a little bit about who are some of the leaders maybe who might reflect that balanced ap- approach. But uh, is, is there a balanced approach? And is excuse me, Massachusetts instructive in terms of uh, what needs to get done? I think CMS is uh, dealing with this in a in a balanced way in terms that they're now not putting out all of the potential um, changes in practice that they could in terms of adding value. They're doing them uh, sequentially and letting institutions uh, deal with that. And I think that's the right approach. Um, starting with the ones that seem to be the most clearly uh, researched and the ones that seem to have the best payoff. So, yes, um, I I think CMS is approaching it in a balanced way. Again, um, for institutions that are really reluctant to do any of this, any linkage to the payment system is viewed as too quick, too fast. But I just want to point out that in our history, we've done this before for different reasons. I mean, when Medicare was passed, um, we basically said to hospitals, if you want to get paid, you have to have a new way of have, a, have an accounting system. And uh, with complaints and com- here and there, they did it. Then in the 1980s, we introduced the uh, DRG payment system, which was quite radical for a lot of institutions. And again, there was a lot of complaints, but it, it worked. So I'm optimistic and I'm particularly optimistic given the amount of interest that your um, organizations are showing, um, that we can do it, um, but it will not be without its uh, shortfalls. Now, with respect to Massachusetts, I am in, in the middle of these debates, and um, uh, Jeff is absolutely correct. Uh, we are, for better or worse, ahead of the curve because we've made this commitment to cover everybody, and now we're trying to figure out a way to to dampen down on the inflation rate. But I will tell you, the battles have not yet begun. Um, It's easy for the Attorney General, well, not easy, but easier for her to issue a report showing big differences in the way, how uh, different institutions are being paid for the same services. But you notice she didn't make any uh, clear legislative recommendation to it or try to impose any immediate changes um, she sort of left that for somebody else. Um, the governor has made some proposals, but I don't see the legislature uh, jumping on that bandwagon so quickly. So I think we, we too, are going to have to do this incrementally um, and because um, it, it requires some pretty big changes. And the people on the top of the pecking order in terms of higher payments are not about to easily give up those higher payments. 
Thanks, uh, Stuart. Uh, always, this is why we <laughs> love having you with us uh, because it it sort of rebounds us, reminds us of sort of realities and uh, what it takes to change things. Um, at IHI, of course, we often look to leaders and organizations that are showing us the new models. Uh, if we do nothing else here, we are constantly trying to innovate and uh, begin to demonstrate, even as a lot of um, wrestling with these issues goes on uh, in legislatures. Jeff, I wanted to ask you, are there some examples of organizations that are, you know, taking all this to heart and maybe showing us some of the way forward right now? Well, you know, we have at IHI a a number of strategic partners and, and other organizations that we work closely with. And so, I think about uh, Kaiser Permanente, uh, uh, Virginia Mason in Seattle, uh, Cincinnati Children's uh, Hospital, Bellin in Green Bay, uh, Wisconsin. Obviously, uh, Geisinger is, a, is an organization uh, to, to uh, highlight in that top group. Uh, Mayo continues to, to innovate, Cleveland Clinic and the like. These organizations are organizations that have said to themselves, we need to develop the capacity to improve what we do, no matter what our level of performance is. And they have developed the leadership, they've understood uh, the whole concept of improvement science, and they have moved forward in in, uh, what we'll call the IHI triple aim. They've looked at how to improve the experience of care while aggressively managing costs and are more and more thinking in terms of the defined population uh, that they're responsible for, whether it be their own employees or it be uh, a defined population uh, in the community. Of course, Kaiser Permanente, being an integrated delivery system as well as an HMO, has 8.8 million uh, people that it's uh, responsible for. And these organizations, I think, are taking very seriously the concept of being a high-reliability organization. They're using different approaches. Virginia Mason, of course, is quite well known for uh, the Toyota production system application, lean manufacturing uh, principles, and the like. I think the, the question is, is that these organizations, though, do not represent the majority of healthcare delivery in the United States. Mm-hmm. And there are uh, any number of organizations where the medical community, say, is fragmented, is split off, say, from the hospital. There are multiple hospitals. And, and the question is, is how do they innovate? How do they create value? And I think this is the basis of the accountable care organization movement, that there are organizations out there that do want to innovate, but it's going to take a long time, if ever, for them to move into a fully capitated uh, type of approach for payment. The second point, I think, on that is, is that as effective as some of our integrated delivery systems are, like a Kaiser, there's a significant part of the population that is very fearful uh, of that type of approach to care. They do not want to be locked in to uh, that type of approach. And again, there is the thought, well, perhaps an accountable care organization that doesn't require a lock-in to the benefit might be an intermediary step uh, to take. 
so it's it's finding those ways to uh, create opportunity for uh, the majority of the delivery system in the U.S. to move forward to uh, to create value. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Jeff Selberg. Uh, we're about to go to questions and comments. Uh, looking forward to what others have to say and perhaps uh, can address some of the questions that you've asked, Jeff. Uh, how do we get more people uh, following the leaders or becoming leaders themselves? Stuart, I guess I'll... Uh, go to you before we go to questions and comments and ask you why it, you think it's so difficult to follow the lead of some of the organizations uh, Jeff was referring to. And I don't know, what choices are, and, and well, let me ask this another way. What are the consequences if money is going to be slowly, you know, kind of coming down here or being clamped down, organizations are going to be clamped down on, what are the options then? Well, two things I'd say. First, uh, you know, the organizations that Jeff mentioned, I know them well, and they're great organizations, but they have many unique stories going back a century, you know, in terms of uh, how they're organized and their attitudes towards change. Um, And I spent a lot of time uh, with organizations that are not there. So... um, and that's where the majority of the healthcare system is. Nevertheless, I'm all in favor of examples because we need them. So I'm, don't, don't get me wrong. I am not suggesting that we shouldn't do this and that we won't do this. Um, all I'm saying is that um, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't downplay the um, difficulty it's going to be to bring <clears throat> the middle ground um, of institutions, forget about the bottom level along. Uh, if we do it too quickly or ask them to do too much, like for example, you had quite a large showing of organizations raise their hand that they are interested in becoming an ACO, this, which is quite different than the sort of standard belief that if the regs are not significantly changed, most institutions in this country are will not do it and are not ready to do it. Um, so, um, yeah, I think we should do it. Um, up to this point, we've been doing it with demonstrations. It's a big difference between a demonstration and actually making it part of the payment system. Right. But you know what? I agree with you. We have to do it. I don't. I, I think we've passed the point where we can continue to hang on to the old payment system. So I'm all in favor of what CMS is doing, but I I didn't want to sort of let loose with the idea, oh, and it won't be a big deal. It will be. (laughs) Okay, absolutely. No, I I totally get the contribution that you're making here to this discussion, and I'm sure our participants do as well. So you were just listening to Stuart Altman. Before him, Jeff Selberg. I'm Madge Kaplan. This is WIHI, and we are trying to walk our way, uh, sort of tiptoe through payment reform on WIHI today, uh, as uh, and I call this program Payment Reform as we speak, because things are happening, and uh, in many ways we have to all make 
make sense of them and uh, see how we can embrace or work with these kinds of changes for the good of patient care. So, Jesse, remind everybody how to ask questions and participate in chat. I see a few people have gotten in under the wire or uh, as we move forward. All right, everybody out there. The chat is now open for you to chat to all participants, and that'll make sure that everyone on our program here can see your questions so we don't duplicate or, you know, perhaps there's some clarifications out there. So a reminder, when you are chatting, please send your message to all participants. Uh, before, uh, while we were, you know, in the discussion, Sandy Schlichter sent me a uh, question that I think is a pretty good one, uh, and this is from Sandy. I believe I'm seeing a convergence of political, social, and economic factors that may lead to a better understanding and a necessity for palliative care and end-of-life education. What is the possible payment reform that can incentivize these much-needed and underutilized areas of care? All right. Thank you very much, Jesse, and thank you for that question. That was Sandy. Jesse? Yep. All right. So something very, very uh, specific as part of payment reform. We've been talking kind of globally, I guess. Uh, Jeff, any thoughts on that? Well, uh, talk about starting with a hot question. <laughs> yeah. Why not? You know, uh, Jesse likes to do that right to me. In. I just want uh, you to know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I would hope um, that um, our <coughs> the person that asked the question is is absolutely right about the confluence of factors, and and it would be a a great great advance to go to where we're suggesting we might be from the the death panel. Uh, concerns that we've had in the past. I, I would say that that to take up the issue of end-of-life care uh, effectively and have it spread across uh, the nation in, in a way where we have a, a, a new cultural norm where we can we can discuss these things openly and honestly and with trust and respect that's what it's uh, that's what it's going to take. IHI is is uh, involved in what's called a conversation project to do uh, just that, stimulate these kinds of conversations. But as I mentioned when I said that there are, there's a population out there that is not entirely trusting of the healthcare uh, apparatus, if you will, uh, here is a, a, a case in point. Um, how do we engage in conversations such that the patient and the family of the patient are uh, being respected, uh, are being trusted, and they trust such that we can have conversations about what's best for the patient as opposed to what's best for the payer or what's best for the provider. And uh, that's what it's going to take. Um, I, I share the optimism. I think we have a way to go to, to be in a place where we can openly and honestly discuss um, end-of-life care and the much, much more effective use of palliative care. Thanks, Jeff. Well, uh, payment reform will probably be continue to sort of figure into the discussion, but in some sense, I guess, uh, what many feel is that the discussion is, is what's important and perhaps uh, the payment can begin to be built around supporting that. Um, Stuart, an interesting question I'm going to throw at you uh, that's on chat here. 
If there are organizations that are greatly trailing the leaders, as Professor Altman says, will there be consolidation or will consolidation be led by the better, more advanced organizations? So I was just reading an article before today's show that was talking about a real uptick uptick in a lot of mergers and consolidation going on in the healthcare industry among hospitals, etc. So does that bode well? I, many people have different ways of thinking about what consolidation might mean right now, but could it possibly bode well for the strong ones uh, being able to uh, really embrace and move forward with payment reform, being the ones uh, sort of leading this consolidation, Stuart? I, yeah, I like that um, suggestion. Um, I, I think the consolidation <clears throat> will be uh, prime not many of the organizations you first mentioned, uh, you know, because most of them are not in a place that can easily consolidate, whether it's Geisinger or Mayo or even um, um, even Virginia, you know, Virginia Mason. Mason is in a better position because it's in Seattle. But um, <clears throat> so, yes, I, I, I think that's exactly the right thing to think about, and that is that the strong need to take leadership not only for themselves, but to sort of do it in their community. Now, the key is going to be changing the payment system away from value-based purchasing around fee-for-service. I don't think that is the end game. That is an intermediate step. We need to go towards either bundle payments or more likely global payments. And I want to respond to the first question. I'm a big believer that we do need to make significant changes at end-of-life care. But I'll tell you, as someone who really got beaten up by the death panel people, if the government comes out in any way and implies that it is going to either pay more for certain kind of less care or less for certain kind of more care, all hell will break loose. Mm -hmm. I think the better way to deal with it is to come up with legitimate bundled payments and push the system back onto the organizations and families to decide among themselves. Because the government is very vulnerable in this area, and for a variety of reasons, not of which I support, but this country is not in a, in a mode that's going to allow government to sort of dictate those rules. Okay, thank you very much, Stuart. There are a couple questions that are being asked on chat which are very specific to the value-based purchasing. Um, I Maybe I might hold on to those. Some of them have to do, somebody's asking, has it been determined what percentage of payment will be received based on what level of performance with core measures? Somebody is asking about size of hospitals and that factor. I'm going to maybe, unless uh, Stuart or Jeff are really up to speed on some of that. We may have to defer, but perhaps we can help guide you. Uh, I've got names here to where some of that information may reside. Are either of you uh, familiar with that level of uh, kind of granular information? No, and I, yeah. I think it's still up for speed. It's a debate. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm in. The, I'm in the same place, and I know that there's lots of debate about critical access hospitals and and how this works for them, and continuing perhaps to differentiate for them. Thanks a lot. So, jo Johan, I'm sorry. 
uh, has uh, written in that we should be re really use asking the question, can we afford the lack of universal coverage? And uh, I think that's, of course, uh, where we're always, we're often sort of grass grappling with this. Can we afford <laughs> to change and can we afford not to change? So thank you, Johan, uh, for throwing that in there. Interesting question from Todd. How will payment reform impact the historical relationship between physicians and hospitals? Uh, <coughs> Jeff, how about I start with you on that? Of course, that's a huge question, sure. but any, any initial thoughts on that? Yeah, let me let me uh, go to that that other question though about can we uh, Fine, go afford for not not to have uh, universal coverage, and I think the answer to that question is is will universal coverage result in advancement of population health? That's the question, and if it does, then certainly we cannot afford not to have it. I, that's a double negative. But uh, I think there's still some thinking that with the orientation of our delivery system as it is and our uh, lack of uh, measurement and understanding how to advance population health, whether it be obesity uh, or it be onset of chronic disease, there is that question. We certainly have to redesign ourselves such that we can advance health as a result of, uh, of uniform access. So I, I just wanted to uh, comment on that. I got, that's fine. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, with regard to uh, will this affect the relationship, absolutely yeah. it affects the relationship between hospitals and physicians. We're going to have to find ways to work together uh, to, to, to collaborate on designing uh, care processes that, that, that generate greater value. And so it's, it's not only about restructuring like an ACO structure, it's also about roles and responsibilities and relationships and behaviors and how all those change in order to have a high-performing organization that consists of both physicians and hospitals. Thanks. Okay. Stuart, any thoughts about that on the uh, – Jeff uh, took it as a two-parter, what we can afford to do and what we can afford not to do, or, and also uh, physicians and hospitals. Well, let me start with the second one first. Um, I, I totally agree with Jeff. Um, this idea that hospitals and physicians are at each other's throats is a non-starter. That has to end and unfortunately exists in too many places, um, probably less so in your institutions that support IHI, but I will tell you it does exist and it needs to end. And um, no better way to end it than to develop incentives which align the hospital and the physician so that they work in together. So we need to develop that. Um, clearly, when it comes to population-based, um, the idea that everyone is covered is a big plus because disproportionately the people that need some of the help that um, we need to provide them are the ones that are uninsured. So I'm on Jeff's side on both sides. Okay, thanks, Stuart. A couple of interesting questions about um, whether or not actually moving in this direction of value-based purchasing and perhaps some of the other things we're talking about, bundled payments, global payments, will it actually help to reduce health care costs? Uh, anybody want to uh, jump into that one? I will jump in. Um, I, I don't. I don't think you're going to see major changes in healthcare costs uh, unless we tie bundle payments 
to the amount of payment that's in the bundle. So um, um, yep. you're going to see restrictions on the size of the bundle in addition to the bundle. Okay. Jeff, thoughts? I, I, I agree with Stuart. I'm, I'm trying, this is just going too well. I've got to figure out a way to disagree with Stuart, and I just can't <laughs> figure out how to do that. Um, but I, I agree. I, I mean, uh, what is the pricing uh, of the bundle, and what are the forces uh, on that? Uh, on that? And, you know, when you look at uh, Massachusetts recently had a hearing uh, to try to think through market-based approaches versus regulatory uh, approaches, and as I listened to that uh, really good dialogue, I, I realized that both a regulatory approach and a market-based approach has the same, uh, trying to do the same thing, and that is how do you create value or instill, inspire value creation uh, in, the, in the field? And it gets back to this balancing again. Will the bundle be priced in a particular way that will be less than the combination of all those services, uh, the cost of the combination of all those services historically? And what is the uh, resolve of whoever is setting the price, whether it's the market or a regulator, in, say, bringing that price down to force that level of innovation? I think that's still a question. Okay. Thank you very much. Jeff Selberg, Stuart Altman, Madge Kaplan here at WIHI. We're talking about payment reform. We used uh, value-based purchasing as kind of our trampoline today, one of the more recent things that has come out of Washington. Fascinating questions, and you have to see me multitasking here as I'm speaking with you. I'm trying to read at the same time. Is there any hope to getting to the point where the market sets the price for bundles? Eric Myers is asking. Anyone on that one? <laughs> Silence. <laughs> Stuart? <laughs> um, what? One of the more intriguing and complicated new, uh, well, it's not new, is going towards these tiered networks or limited networks. Um, we've tried them in the past, and ultimately we found that, that employers and employees didn't want to participate. Massachusetts is now showing a lot greater interest in them. And underlying these, bund underlying these limited networks is um, actually market-generated bundles. So in terms of the questioner, mm -hmm. I think the answer is yes. And we're in, uh, the group that I am um, working with are quite encouraged by these um, new market forces in terms of limited networks. And we're suggesting we ought to let them play out before we impose maybe the restrictive regulatory stuff that we really don't know what we're doing. Okay, thanks a lot. Jeff, what do you think, this was something I believe you had to address in your testimony before uh, the Mass Finance uh, Agency uh, a couple weeks ago. What do you think is the right balance right now between the kind of redesign of care, what we're talking about with the IHI triple aim, and creating a big push around uh, tiered networks and health plans, et cetera. I mean, that's the approach that uh, is kind of turning up the screws on providers, but also on patients and consumers as well. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's going to be both uh, in order to be, uh, to be effective. I mean, when you go back to the, to the triple aim, 
you think about improving the experience of care and how to build incentives around that, how uh, individuals select physicians and hospitals in a tiered system uh, perhaps will create uh, a more informed and engaged decision maker on the part of the uh, patient. Uh, in terms of population-based, um, I think uh, there are a lot of organizations out there that feel like, well, we've got one foot on the dock and, and one foot in the boat, and as we get more effective on the population-based side and we reduce admissions that, that, that fund our income statement and balance sheet, geez, how do we manage all of this? And I think the true leverage, frankly, over the long term uh, for healthcare costs is truly a healthier population. And so more, I think, has to be done in terms of uh, behavior and uh, beliefs around how one uh, lives uh, a healthy lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So I think it, I think it is uh, it is both. Interesting questions. People are kind of getting wondering whether value-based purchasing can help accelerate uh, reducing healthcare disparities to help reach population health goals? Uh, Might value-based purchasing help hospitals focus more on patient experience to increase HCAP scores, patient experience scores that are being collected that are increasingly going to be uh, tied to some payment as well? Jeff, any thoughts on that? Well, I think the the innovation that's probably the most disruptive and and way out there is what uh, a number of, I think, uh, researchers are doing in terms of self-management as far as breaking the paradigm of you have to go someplace to see someone to have something done to you in order for you to be cared for. And uh, with technology um, and really focusing on building literacy about disease processes, uh, it's, it looks possible that patients can, can become their own, um, their own provider, so to speak, with, with providers that, uh, physicians, hospitals, whatever, now in more of a coaching uh, position. And when you look at how other industries have innovated, it's really around this concept of of bringing a rules-based approach uh, to progressively more people who can understand if they follow certain rules, essentially they're caring for themselves. In talking uh, with colleagues across the field, this uh, is met with quite a bit of skepticism. Uh, but I visited a special care clinic in Atlantic City, uh, sponsored by jointly by the Casino Workers Union and by uh, the Atlantic Care Hospital, and that's what they're doing for the 1,300 people that are the top users of health care in the Casino Workers. It's not been there for very long, but they appear to be making some real advances. Uh, yes, go. Thank, thanks, Jeff. Yes, go right ahead, Stuart. Um, one of the concerns I have, supporting what Jeff said, is the idea that the federal government has backed away from asking the patient to play any role mm-hmm. and putting all the onus on the provider community. So if you look at the regs in the ACO, if you look at the whole way the legislation is written, the beneficiaries have no responsibility to sort of be part of networks, to have restrictions on their use, 
to in any way participate if they don't want to. And until and unless we bring them in, as Jeff's pointed out, I, 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 I don't think we're going to make big headway in terms of that part of the equation. Mm -hmm. And that is getting patients to see it in their best interest. You know, we've already been educating them for a long time on what makes sense. So that's the first thing. Yep. The second thing that we need to bear in mind is much of the research recently suggests that up to 75% of rising health care costs is being generated by rising prices, not by utilization. Mm -hmm. Getting at prices, which is embedded in our whole delivery system, is much harder than as, bad, as difficult it is to deal with utilization. Price, getting at prices is the hardest thing because, as I said, it's sort of embedded into the way we deliver care. Right. But we need to get at that. Right. So I guess it would take a whole other program to discuss how we could get at that. Well, but that's what value-based pricing is all about. Right, right. That's why yeah. value-based pricing says, okay, I'm going to pay you more for X, but I'm going to pay you less for Y. I'm going to get at that price. Right. And that's why value-based pricing makes sense. All right. You know, and, and, Go ahead, and, Jeff. Yep. And I, uh, I see a, a good friend, Jay Wan, has asked a question about uh, differential between best value and least value. And it reminds me that <coughs> we're talking about value and bundled pricing. We also need to talk not only about the price, but what the individual patient gets for that price. So we, we need to have measures... Uh, on that as well. So here's a, here's a reference in terms of here's the price and here's what one can assume will be the outcome. Right. Uh, you've got to have both sides of that. You can't just have the price. Okay. Well, this is terrific. I want to just make uh, thanks, Jeff and Stuart, both. Uh, I do want to make just a small plug for a web in action called Getting Started on the IHI Triple Aim. It's coming up in October, October 12th. Jeff referred to the Triple Aim. It is kind of a foundational thing here at IHI that we believe is part of the overall design of, the, of healthcare and what it means for people to be healthy as well, work on the experience of care and reducing per capita costs. And it gets to uh, Stuart's point about what is the responsibility of patients and consumers as well. So that's October 12th. There's information about that on the IHI.org. All right, just some final words, I think, from both of you. Uh, no, no easy road here. Uh, somebody is wondering, Eric Myers is wondering if we get it pricing, who will be the losers? If anyone wants to <laughs> venture anything there. Uh, but I guess to, to my mind, where we've wound up uh, is that we're kind of moving in fits and starts here in the right direction. Uh, but uh, this is why we have to keep coming back to this discussion to take the temperature and to see how we're doing. Maybe I'll ask you both uh, for parting shots and any any predictions of uh, if we were to come back in I don't know six months what we'll be talking about. Well, let me let me jump on because the, the your question was absolutely a, a good question, and that is who are going to be the losers, and will the losers let a, let the system have them lose. And in the past, politically, we've not let that happen. We ultimately sort of 
make winners, but we don't penalize losers. I don't think the future can hold that any longer. We don't have the money to sort of paper over the losers. So yes, there will be losers, but you can, exp- what, one of the things I was trying to say is those losers are gonna push back. And the problem is they, if we're not careful, they could erase all the benefits that I think can come from good value-based pricing. All right, Stuart, w- wise as always. Yes, Jeff. And I would say what we, what we have to guard again is to assure that the patients and the communities served are not the losers. And what we need to do is that we, as Stuart says, we have to bend this cost curve. But we have to do it in a way uh, where uh, patients are better served, communities are better served. And uh, I, I believe we, we have the ability to do that. Uh, I think there are great examples out there. It's a matter of, of all of us across the nation waking up to the, the requirement and uh, spreading these good practices. Jeff Selberg uh, from IHI out in San Francisco today, not here in Cambridge. Thank you very much for taking the time. We look forward to seeing you back here in Cambridge. Stuart Altman, not too far away, out in Waltham, Massachusetts at Brandeis. Thank you so much for giving of your time and your thoughts, and we look forward to having you back here as well. Next up on WIHI, September 8th, actually, we're having a little mini uh, late July-August break where we do invite you to please take advantage of the rich archives, and you'll see more information about that on our website. But on September 8th, you can enroll right now. Always events, raising expectations for patient experience. We're going to have guests from the Picker Institute, IHI, and two organizations that are recipients of Always Events Challenge grants. We hope you'll uh, take advantage of that program coming up in September. Check out our website where you'll find audio of this program by tomorrow morning. You'll also find it on iTunes. You search under podcasts in the IHI. You spell that out. All our previous programs are available on iTunes as well, as well as on IHI.org. A reminder that you can download the chat and any slides we shared with you today. You have that option when you log off the computer. If you were only joining by phone today, let us know if you'd like that material by emailing info at IHI.org. The people who make this program possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, excuse me, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse. And then we have some nice music that opens and closes the program. Their original arrangements by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Sapasoa on piano. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning. I think that was in evidence today. And improving patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. See you soon. Good day.